Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So this week, I have John and Reggie back on the podcast. Um, It was such an awesome time talking to them, and I got a lot of great feedback from the crowd. So I invited them to come back and talk a little bit more about uh, what's going on in uh, our nation right now and um, how that affects the built environment, including everything from education to perception. So Welcome back, John and Reggie. Uh, like the BS and Beer Show, we chose to record this one at the end of the day. So I'm having a Goose Island IPA. I'm having a main beer company, Wolfsneck. Ooh, I love lunch. Lunch yes. is my favorite. And I'm, uh, I'm going with an old standard here. I got a, I got a Miller High Life. It's the champagne of beers. <laughs> it's champagne. The champagne, if you will. All right. Nothing like a good champagne in the uh, afternoon. That's right. So. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. Last time you guys were on, uh, we talked a little bit about education. Um, And I think maybe just starting off today, we'll talk a little bit about how we should address education based on what's going on in the world. And so um, in reference to a previous podcast, I did record with Trayvon. I hope you guys all tuned in for that one. Um, And just talking about education and getting the built environment and, you know, Black Lives Matter and diversity and really reaching out to people and and talking about what we do, what we think and, and getting in front of them and saying, hey, it's possible for you to be an architect or a builder and, you know, there's no barrier to entry. So I don't know what you guys have been up to this week and what you want to share based on that. Yeah, well, this is John. I, I, you know, we've, I think in the past um, week or two, we've been, I think we're in a national moment. I think everybody's taking action that should have been taken a long time ago. Um, so I think we all feel in a, in a feel in a delayed state, but at the same time, it's been, a, I think there's been an ignition that we've seen. It certainly affected us in our company. And, and I think we're seeing it around the country that something's changing, something's different. And so I think we're all trying to ask ourselves, what is it, what does it all mean for us? And, and where, you know, where, where are we responsible and where can we help? Um, but I think a, a lot of it for us has been taking on the, to trying to take on the work um, as a white-led organization um, to confront, you know, the racism that's just systemic within everything that we do, whether it's in our industry, just inside of us as people, within the makeup of the company. Um, and uh, I think one of the biggest learnings we've had is that when we look at something like racism and then it's violent, um, it, you know, uh, uh, the violent actions that come because of it, it's, it's due to something that really permeates everything. We can't separate race out from anything that we do. And I think that we're trying to still grapple with what that means for us. But in the meantime, what we've done as a company is made donations to black led organizations. Um, We've been trying to communicate with our peers in the high performance building industry, basically reach out to the community that we have access to and a voice within and try to move people 
um, towards that further action and had some conversations there that have been really good. Um, and then we're taking a look internally at the company about what we do going forward. And I think it pertains to um, hiring, you know, staffing, training, you know, what do our job descriptions look like when they go out the door? You know, where are we putting those job descriptions? You know, those kinds of questions we're trying to really, um, you know, dig down to the, to the bone on it and, and see where we, see where we land. One of the takeaways that I got from talking with Trayvon is to, to share stories of, you know, black owned businesses as well. Um, and to really support, there is a, a very low level of black individuals in the architecture community. So I was really, uh, excited to have him on to talk about his business and what he's doing and what he's doing in his community. Um, he had an architect that came into his school and I don't remember if it was in middle school or in high school and just talked about the profession of architecture. Um, and then he said, showed him SketchUp and he was sold that it was the best, was very super excited. And that access to just knowing things out there of interest to them could be a great way for us to start the education procedure. And, you know, I've mentioned it, I think on a couple of podcasts is some of that stuff seems to keep coming back to middle school. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about it a little bit, I think on the last podcast you guys were on, on how do we get the built environment, architects, builders, um, you know, mechanical, electrical plumbing trades, into the schools to kind of talk more about what they're doing and open up our, you know, in some cases, I'm sure there's a liability issue, but, you know, open up our job sites or do a community project that involves students at that level in hopes of getting more people interested in the trades of all dynamics, all backgrounds. Um, I recorded a podcast with one of Matt's students, um, Sydney. She was the only female in um, the group. And I can't tell you how many people afterwards have said, we've met her, um, you know, either at an event or on the job site, you know, and who have said, we'd hire her in a heartbeat. And then people listen to the podcast and say, she wants to come to the West Coast, we'll hire her in a heartbeat because, you know, she's, she was given the opportunity to do something that she then said, Hey, this is awesome. And, you know, there were no barriers to, or no hurdles for her doing it once it was presented as an opportunity for her. And I think that's kind of cool. And I don't know if, if that's the start of the next wave of better socially connected and environmentally building our communities. I think that's a great start. I mean, I, well, I mean, I think it's a that's a, that's a great thing. You know, I think it's it's not only a great start, I mean, it's a great place. I, I think, I think too, as our as our building gets more complex and technical, you know, the point of entry, you, you know, for people to to be skilled and join the the labor force, we really, you know, I I, I feel that we can really we really need to be able to cast our net well beyond the classic, oh, do you want to drive nails for a living? Sure. Okay. Come on over. You know, we're talking, you know, the buildings we're talking about are very scientific. They're, you know, they're data driven. This, this is, we need all kinds of people to make these projects happen. And as we develop new ways of building, 
and new ways to run job sites. I mean, I think we really need to take take stock and really think about, you know, where we can find the best, you know, where the best people and also just give give opportunity and inspire kids to or anybody for that matter, but especially kids coming through, you know, school to say, this is a really viable, you know, uh, career path to really to take on. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of place or uh, movement for advancement and, and you, and you do, it, it's a very, it is very engaging. You know, what we do every day, you've got to be engaged to do it right. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah. <clears throat> I'm reminded actually of a conversation I had, um, uh, at pa- Passive House Maine is this great organization we have in Maine that focuses on supporting the the industry building, honestly building high performance homes, but specifically using the principles of Passive House as the the guy the the North Star. And um, at the last fall forum, there was um, a big. There were, I don't know how many classes were there, but there was a big contingency of middle school. I think and maybe high school kids there. Um, and I remember talking to one of the teachers who's a math teacher. And he and I had a really engaging conversation where he's, we never, I'm probably, I should probably go follow up and actually make it happen. But I said, reach out to me anytime. But he was talking about how he'd love to have me come into his class and talk about some of the performance stuff and the engineering and the math behind, you know, what we do every day, or just the fact that like, I I can tell you personally, I was terrible at math uh, for most of high school. And I'm way better now that I'm a carpenter because I use it every day. Cause I have to, there's an application. I remember it being abstract in high school just never worked for me. I just could never get it. But you know, we have to do, I mean, we, we throw measurements around all the time and fractions and things, but then also trigonometry and being able to, you know, calculate pitches and degrees and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, I mean, I think there's, it's not just about, okay, let's go talk to the Vogue classes or let's go talk to the shop classes. But like, let's find all the different ways that we can approach this so that kids are like seeing it in a different lens and they're seeing like, let's go talk to art classes, you know, let's go talk to math classes or whatever. And, and, and really kind of try to meet students in places where they're not expecting it. And I think that little bit of cognitive dissonance can help kind of create some of this spark, you know? That there, there are so many things I want to say to that. First one is um, I wasn't bad at math, but I hated math. I thought it was so boring because it didn't apply to anything. And then I went to architecture school and I had to take structures classes and we learned how to use calculus to evaluate structures. And all of a sudden it was like, well, this makes so much more sense. You know, it's a point of failure and all this that you use calculus to create it. But until that point, just doing it in class and learning how to do it was so beyond my interest level. I was just like, this isn't cool. I, I, I used to play Tetris on my calculator in math class because that was my interest level. And I almost didn't go to architecture school because I thought I would have to do a lot of math. Mm. And I was okay at math i just thought it doesn't interest me at all like why do i want to continue in a profession where i have to do a lot of math i actually almost went to school for um chemistry Mm. which 
probably would have had to do a whole lot more math in chemistry than I would ever have had to do in architecture. But my mind said, architecture is a ton of math and math is boring. I'm not going to like this. Um, and I was wrong. In fact, um, at Penn State, you have to take structural classes and, and everything else. So you have to be able to pass classes where you use math. But as your general education, you could take a class called the history of math. And I kid you not, you do not actually do any math in the history of math. You just learn about the history of math. So for people out there who think that you don't have, that you, you need to be super great at math to get into architecture school, you don't have to be. Although, um, if you go to Penn State, you go to main campus, they make you take math without a calculator, and that is a little harder than, <laughs> than it should be, but you can take the history of math. Um, and in addition to that, you made me think of something I haven't thought of since I graduated from architecture school, but one of our professors started a lecture series um, when we were in architecture school, and um, his thought was that we as architects needed to have every other discipline come and talk to us about how those disciplines could relate to architecture and it was the coolest lecture series we had people from the science department from the art department from the math department from liberal studies we had so many different other departments come and talk to us about the connection between these things and maybe that was what led me to be a slightly different architect where I think about everything from, from the nature through the end design. Um, but there are so many things that are interrelated and you're right. I mean, talking to kids in math class could be just as great, if not better, because you might connect with somebody who didn't think they wanted to go into a trade for whatever reason because they thought right. that they'd have to do a lot of math <laughs> yeah that's a good point um i looked up so i looked up a little bit of labor statistics and this isn't like super specific on like carpentry or residential building or design but overall in the construction industry it is 71 percent white and 7.5 percent black and then the rest is sort of categorized as other for, for some reason, which is probably another failing of our society that we sort of lump people of color or people who aren't white in some really bizarre ways. Um, and then also just, you were talking about, um, you using that example of that girl the other uh, earlier and uh, construction is 96% men and 4% women. So, I mean, those are some staggering, that's, that's across the construction industry. So it's sort of all of the trades and all of the, you know, different things. But I, th I, I bet that snapshot is relatively true profession to profession. You know, it probably goes up or down from there. But, um, but I, think that there's, I think there's a massive question that we all need to be asking ourselves right now. of like, what's leading to that? You know, some of it's like, what, it's all well and good to talk about things being systemic, but if you don't analyze the system, then, then you don't actually know how to fix it either. In the same way that I think there's all the all the attention on policing right now, it's like, oh, what's the actual service of the police, and what do we actually need to fund? And there's a huge conversation around that where we're actually trying to break down, okay, what do they actually do? Where does the system fall down, and how does it lead to the death of black people? And I think in the same way on the trades, we can say, okay, well, so what educational programs or lack of educational programs, what kind of materials are out there, you know, what are the stigmas attached and all that. I think that's what 
I think it's on all of us over the, in the, in the coming months and years to unpack that and try to figure out, you know, what are we doing to discourage or not, uh, you know, create a welcome environment for um, people of color? Yeah. I think the first, one of the first things we, we really got to look at is just taking the stigma away from construction period. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, you know, there's, I mean, when, so, we're probably not helping that cause at all. That's right. That's, yeah, this is not good. In fact, we're talking about we it. Be, we're out. <laughs> we're, we're hurting it. <laughs> no, please don't no, leave. But I mean, nobody is allowed to leave the construction industry. <laughs> You're only allowed to get more people because we, we, we want the proportions to change, but not the number of people. Number of people needs to go. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like it's much of an endorsement to be like, go into the trade. You'll turn into us. Wow. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, like, I think I would hope things are a little bit different, but you know, I'm, uh, I'm, what am I, 36 now? We graduated high school, you know, for me, I was, I think I, I'm out of, I mean, I know I've known John for a long time, and, you know, I'm, and um, I mean, I, I'm kind of the, I, I probably fall into a bit of a stereotypical person who goes into the trades, you know, I barely made it out of high school and literally barely made it out of high school. I was good at math, but I grew up in a household of construction. So I, and my interests were building and my bigger interest at the time and still is, is cycling or bicycles in design and that kind of thing. So I saw, so, you know, that kind of made math cool. You know, I mean, that's, I, I could see where you used it, you know, and, right. um, you know, cause what I, I worked for my, you know, for, my father and other in, in other builders growing up through high school and stuff like that, we had to, you know, math is a big part of what we do. Um, so I think that was lucky in the fact that it was, it kind of showed me, it, it gave it relevant, you know, it gave it relevance. It's like everyone in school is like, Oh, you don't ever use math. I'm like, well, I probably will end up using a lot of math. The two things that I'm interested in, um, you know, but I think a large part of this too, like when we, I hope it's different now, but I don't see any why it would be is that, you know, the, there was a big stigma around the trades, you know, going to trade school or just going out of high school into the trades was, you know, it was, it was definitely like, you can be a doctor, you can be a engineer and then, or you can be a computer programmer, you can be a nurse, you know, you can do all that stuff. And then if you, and if you can't, and they kind of have that, if you can't, and, and if you can't do that, you can, you can go into construction because, because the world needs ditch diggers too, you know, and we got to get that. We got to figure that out too. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we got to figure out, but we got to get, we got to get rid of that as fast as possible because it's I, not true. Yeah. And I think simultaneous to that, we have, we have to bring up the level of quality in general too. So it's yeah. like, not only do we have to make it, do we need to break that stigma and, Gosh, I don't even know where that starts and ends. You know, I mean, it's just, I, I've been with family members who've like talked about their kids, like a like kid will run into the wall because I don't know, let's face it, like little kids do stupid things because they all do. And they, and there's just the joke of, oh, that's okay. They'll get into trade school. And you're like, it's all well and good. And it's funny. And I'm sitting there as a carpenter, just being like, hmm, thanks guys. <laughs> you know, but it's like, but it's innocent enough, but when you really start to unpack moments like that, like I'm very, I have a hawkish attention to it and I'm like, wait a minute, why is that even funny? You know? 
like why 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 do we even think that way you know when all of us rely on our profession to survive you know there was somebody we were having a conversation last week and someone brought up the the idea of like you know we provide shelter we provide one of the core necessities of modern you know of any kind of civilized life and you know why isn't that held in such highest in high esteem and i think part of it too is that the nature of construction education over the at least past several decades if not longer has been kind of haphazard and it results in very mixed quality out there i mean we have attended to so many building failures that just never needed to be that way but whoever built it they were rushed they didn't care they didn't have the good buildings i mean who knows why but it was improper work i mean buildings will fail things will happen stuff degrades fine but going in and finding stuff that did, that just was poorly done where someone spent a lot of time doing it wrong shows us that we're also we also just need a higher quality of education to bring people in we talked just to bring this in the conversation we talked last time about builder certification and licensing by doing licensing programs you're going to at least be able to require a certain level of working knowledge of some of the basic principles that you know we spend a ton of time paying attention to and learning about but you know and trying to bring the whole level of quality up and also show that you got to know something you know but you can learn it but you do have to know something you can't just sort of jump into this you know hold your nose and hope for the best there is way too much with like forcing kids to go to college. I mean, look at the people who come out of college now who have so much debt that they have to take on these bigger jobs. And how many people do you know that come home every day and are like, I love my job. I love what I decided to do. I love, I went to college and this is what I love doing. And you, you talk to parents and they're like, yeah, more kids should get into the trades. The trades are great, but not my kid. And, you know, right. changing that whole thing. And I think the second level of builder certification is part of the reason why people don't maybe go into general construction is because it's not a licensed trade. And if you go out and you become a plumber or an electrician, you know, that's a, that's a trade. That's a, that's a licensed profession. And so there's, there's even more clout to to those things because they you know they have to be a master electrician they have to be a master plumber they have to have a certification they had to get experience they had to learn those things people complain all the time you know the general public you know there's no craftsmanship anymore buildings aren't built the way they were before the way that building is coming together and building science is getting better there is so much that's cool in the built environment they just aren't seeing that and that's why we're still seeing well i've been doing it this way for 25 years and it made reggie when you were talking it made me think about this which was access one of the things that trayvon said to me on the podcast was this architect came into my school and said i could do this and i didn't know i could do this until i saw that and i think traditionally in building and correct me if i'm wrong is a lot of builders were second or third generation builders. My dad was a builder. My grandfather was a builder. I was a builder. Well, as people are getting out of the trades, their kids are going to college. They're not becoming builders, you know, and you have 
people who, who like to do it who might still do it. But fewer and fewer people are getting into building. They just don't know that's an opportunity for them. They don't know that for a summer they could come work on a job crew and see if they liked yeah. it. Um, people who take some of my classes, they're like, what's the best advice you could give us? And I'm like, go work for a builder for a summer. Hey man, can we say that again? <laughs> yeah, go work for a builder for a summer. I tell that to all of the the architecture and design students who have, um, you know, have come to my class who have asked me for like, what's the best advice you could have? Um, and whether it's you work for a builder for the whole summer or you go out and you volunteer on a Habitat for Humanity project for a week, you know, whatever you have available to you, there are some really great programs where people have gone overseas and built built sure. something there are some super cool programs that people have learned so much about both community and diversity and different parts of the country and different professions and then maybe they haven't gone into construction maybe they have but they have a different perspective and i think talking about it and maybe going to places where you say, hey, this is an opportunity and anybody can be, you know, can be interested in this. And it's not just swinging a hammer. Like all things, I think there are preconceived notions of what people do. Yeah. yeah. So. I think a lot of it too, like, you know, growing up, for me, growing up around a lot of people who worked in the trades, there was a big, you know, and my father had this too, you know, my, I mean, everyone's parents wants better for them better for their kids and that you know they want to you know elevate that you know and and you know and I vividly remember my father saying when I was you know I was quite young he was saying well you know if you ever get into a bind you know sheetrock but that was a sheetrocker you know is you do you know metal stud work hang and tape sheetrock you know and he said whatever happens when I'm in my late teens like whatever happens to you now you've got to trade you can always find work somewhere you'll never go without because you know you got a work ethic and you got to, you, you have enough of a skill now to, you can go find work. And, but at the same time, he was also said, but you know, I hope that if you really love this, then go for it, but don't fall back on it just because you can, you know, he's like, I, I want, he wanted better. You know, he wanted, you know, he said, you know, go out and do more. And I don't think that that's, I understand where he came from, but I also think that he, you know, this, this, this stigma, the stigma that comes has been, it's been a long time. You know, we, this has been around for a long time. I know other, you know, parents that grew up, you know, have friends and stuff growing up. That's it's like, you know, there's kids who watched, kids who watched their parents struggle with the stigma of it or, or just what the work was or is. And it's like, Oh, I don't want any of that. You know, like there's, there's too many, too many angles of the story that's told of like, Oh no, like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be there. Um, I think the interesting thing for us in the built environment now is that it's not, first off, it's not the way it used to be. It's more technical than it ever has been. And we are also, uh, we're, I think in the built environment, we're finally, starting to utilize new technology i think we i believe we're pretty far behind you know not to say that we shouldn't continue to stick build houses you know on sites and stuff like that but there's ways and means for a lot of us to you know to to make the job easier you know and be able to focus on these technical aspects that we haven't had before 
and uh, and I think that the trades need to need to need that for the technical for the technical need of it. They also need it because it's just better for the people in the field, you know. And you're going to get more people to come in, whether it's you know panelized, you know, like highly panelized stuff, you know, modular, you know, you know, high performance modular, or just even utilizing more technology on site. Yeah. You know, residential builders around us finally have telehandlers. That's a pretty low bar. You know, you have a forklift. Holy smokes. You know, we never had that. We don't have to carry everything everywhere anymore. I mean, that's a pretty low bar to think about. That was something um, when I had Heather Thompson, Thompson Johnson works on, because um, I like to be very pro like women in construction, yeah. women uh, in architecture just to share my story and say like, Hey, there wasn't any reason why I couldn't do it. So you, there's no reason why right. you can't do it. And so I had Heather on, um, and she's great. And I said, is one of the barriers to women getting into construction because we're perceived to be weaker, we can't lift as much stuff or we, you know, and she's like, we don't lift anything alone. Like nobody's over there just like hauling it around on their own. Like we have technology now. We work as a team. Like nobody's, especially with these tilt and turn triple pane windows coming in. Like who's lifting that thing? That sucker is heavy. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you know, she's like, we don't do that. You know, and and I think oh, that's a preconceived notion. It's like everything is super hard and you're going to be tired and exhausted. And yet at the same time, some things are hard and you're tired and you're exhausted. And as a technology improves, and especially as we move towards carbon negative buildings and some plant-based building materials don't have the same R value as some of the really nasty petroleum based things that we spent a lot of money to create. Like if you're lifting one of Jacob's straw bale panelized walls, yeah. you, you, I mean, how thick are those? Those things yeah. are, you know, massively thick. And so, you know, you have big equipment that's yeah. doing some of that stuff yeah. for you. And that's another technical part that gets into it is you know, I was on the job site. We had panelized wall construction. I kind of wanted to be like, can I run the crane? <laughs> kind of think that yeah. would be fun. Like, I want to do that. Yeah. And there's a couple of things in, in what you both just said that got me thinking too. It's like, I think work ethic is part of this though, too. I mean, I think, I think that we can work smarter, not harder in a lot of ways, but it's a physical job. I mean, building things is a physical job and you've got to have, I mean, it does, I think it is going to gravitate to a certain type of person, like, but all of these other sort of areas of difference that we're talking about don't enter into that. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, what color you are or what your gender is or anything like that. It just, I think people who like being outside all the time, you know, it's like one of the big things for me is I had a whole career before this for nine years as an environmental activist, which was awesome. And it was totally my passion. And I ended up just hating being on the phone and computer all day. I'm just, I'm a physical person. I get cagey and I can't do it day in and day out. And so I think that's another thing too, is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of value in just the fresh air aspect in the physical aspect of it. I mean, yeah, you, you do get tired, you know, you're, you're using your body all day, but you don't have to break your body all day. 
I think that's the distinction for me. You have to have a work ethic. You, you, you have to want to push hard. You have to be a person who really wants to, to go make something happen every day, but you don't have to kill yourself doing it either. You know? And I think that's, that's maybe one of the misconceptions that those things get conflated and it's like, Oh, working hard is just way too hard for me. And it's like, well, no, I mean, do you like playing soccer for hours on end? Like, it's this, it's just another physical activity. Well, that's a yeah. And that you, I was gonna say, and that you condition that's your it. body. Like, you don't have to be in tip-top physical shape day no. one because you get there and you acclimate. I mean, people said when I moved to Maine, I would be crazy as I sit in my basement with my sweater on. But like, you know, now it's 30 degrees and I was like, it's warm outside. You don't need a jacket. When I moved here from Washington, DC and it snowed 10 feet the first like week I was here, I thought, oh my goodness, what did I do? But you know, like you acclimate to physical conditions, both how you work your body and, you know, the environment that you're in. And how many people have desk jobs where, uh, I mean, even for me with this whole COVID-19, part of the reason why I own my own business is because I don't like to sit in front of the computer and draft all day. That was never what I was really mm -hmm. passionate about. The creative portion of it, I think, is what led me more towards architecture and less towards, you know, construction. Um, in, in the artsy part of my brain, but I like to go out and go to the job site. That's where I actually learn. I'm a hands-on physical yeah. learner. When I was in, you know, high school, we did Habitat for Humanity style things over the summertime. And I learned to do some of that stuff and I had an interest in it. And I think part of the reason why I don't work in a firm architecture setting is because I don't want to sit all day long. Right. But back to the whole COVID-19 and everybody being home and everybody just, you know, sitting for hours on end. I was like, here I am in my late thirties. And like, it just hurts to sit all day long. So, I mean, <laughs> it might be better if I was out in yeah. a job site all day, you know, using my body. It's a different kind of hurt, but it's like, we weren't maybe meant to sit for hours a day. And as we got more technology, we were meant to be more efficient and have to spend less time doing things. And we've actually kind of gone the wrong yeah. direction where we've just made it so that technology makes you work more, work longer, sit at the desk longer and not, and not move. And I think there are people working in cubicles and home offices and places all over the country who probably would be a whole lot happier doing the things that are hard, but not, you know, but they think, oh, physically exhausting. Like we don't, we don't yeah. do that. No, I mean, I would say, but to, to say what, to talk, you know, to, to speak to what you're both talking about, what John was mentioning too. I mean, I think that that's one place where this, like, you know, I feel like I've been, at least in our locale, I've been in this long enough to see the difference. You know, like we don't, like, like what Heather's saying, it's like, we don't live, you know, triple plate, you know, triple glazed, you know, European tilt turn windows, you know, into place one per, with one person, you know. But that hasn't, that's, that's relatively recent. I mean, those windows are just ridiculously heavy. So therefore there's like, there's a physical, you can, you know, component <laughs> to that. So that helps, it helps, it helps us advance. But, you know, I mean, when I was in my early twenties, you know, it was the bunch of the, you know, older, you know, el you know, elder carpenters that were like, don't, don't, 
don't carry more than you have to. You know, of course, we're all young. We go, oh, we can do this, you know. And now I'm in my mid, you know, I'm in my mid thirties, going, oh, my knees really hurt a lot, you know. And you know, but it's not. I think we have we've made a. I would say we give. I give the, you know, I give our industry a fair amount of credit because we have, at least in where I stand and what I see, we have moved a lot beyond that. But that is relatively recent, you know it's relatively recent that it's like, I can carry two bundles of shingles up the ladder. And someone's gonna be listening to this and going, you can't carry three? And I would say, why the hell would you want to? You know, that's, yeah. you know. It's the same way. I was, um, you know, I was describing, uh, talking to a new client, I think it was last week, and we were talking about giving them a garage. They've never had a garage. They've lived in this project, this property for 40 years, and it's up a flight of stairs because the house is like up on a hill and the driveway is down here. And she's like, I carry as many bags as I possibly can as I go into the kitchen. You know, it's just like, ah. Take an extra right. trip. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'll give you a garage. I'll give you a garage, I promise. <laughs> well, the, another thing that, uh, Emily, you said a little while ago, got me thinking too, that I think is really interesting about our particular, you know, being a builder or a carpenter is that there are all these licensed trades that we work with and by no means are, are me or Reggie electricians or plumbers or, you know, any of those things that we, we subcontract for our jobs. But one of the cool things I really like about what we do is that we have to understand them enough to be dangerous. Like we have to know what a plumber is going to need. We need to know what the electrician is going to need. We need to know at what phase that's going to go into the job. Like our, our, the way that we run our company is that we, we try to pitch in with our subs whenever they really need it. Cause a lot of these, a lot of the people that we're hiring are just one guy, you know, it's one guy who shows up and runs his pipe, runs his wire, whatever. And so we By try the way, to it's usually in. one guy man <laughs> yeah man there is a really yeah. what one electrician that i worked with uh was a female and i have to tell you her wiring was pristine that's, yeah that's awesome that's awesome i mean that's uh, well and i think part i mean our our point of view too is like all of those trades need everything that we're talking about as well but one of the things that i think is cool about carpentry Absolutely. is like we've got to, you kind of have to know what everybody else is doing. You got to know excavation. You've got to know all of these different things. And what's crazy to me is that there's so much responsibility that lies on our plate. And at least in the state of Maine, we don't need to be licensed. Like that's nuts. We're totally responsible for all the permitting and making sure that all these things go in the right place and that inspections happen and et cetera, et cetera. And we don't have to show anybody a card ever for anything which is just wild to me. And I think it's, it's, I think that part of it's crazy. And then also it's a massive missed opportunity to, to make sure people have the education and common knowledge, because I don't know, I think the trades and carpentry, you know, of a hundred years ago really was like a passed down thing. It was generational and you got, you know, and there was, it was a real continuity, but it's so heavily fragmented now, you know, I mean, I came, I mean, I sort of worked in carpentry throughout college to like pay the bills and stuff like that here and there but I wasn't really a carpenter until a, a few years ago and I come into it in my mid-30s you know we've got uh, one of our crew members started in his late 30s I mean we've got people who are starting in their late 20s they've already done other things they're not not part of the continuum I mean Reggie is sort of a more classic example of someone who's kind of part of that generational continuum 
but that doesn't really typify everybody else that we see. And because it's so fragmented, we need to get more intentional about how we train people and educate people. And we certainly try to do that within our company, but we're not seeing a ton of support for it. So it's like, it's, I think it's good to be talking about kids in middle school, kids in high school, but also sort of like, how do, how do we as a society support this to make sure that, you know, we have well-built homes and that we have really good professions for people to go into and, and jobs for them to do. Another little statistic that I found too, is that the, uh, the national average for construction workers is 66% of the overall national average for salaries. So that's another thing too. It's like the more, the more sort of prestige licensing and quality we really put on this profession, I think the more money that people can make and the more people will pay for it because it's, it needs to be seen that way. And as building gets better, it should cost more. And, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it should cost more on each individual basis. Because if you look at, um, New York city, which is a great example, and I've talked about this on a couple of podcasts, but if you look at New York city, some of their public housing projects that are passing passive house are better than the high-end apartments that people live in. Like they have better air quality, better comfort levels, better all of that uh, on a totally different level. And using that to help us support our communities as we grow. And the American dream has been the single family house with the two point whatever kids and the cars and whatever. And our environment cannot support this. There's half children. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I have, I have one dog. I'm working on, I'm helping people out who who don't have one. So you're you're making it so that somebody else can have a whole game. Me too. Yes. I have a dog and a cat. So we're, yeah. Our, our lack of kids combined makes it so that Reggie can have his second child. Thank you. I appreciate that. There we go. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and I don't want to say that we want to make things inaccessible to people because that it seems like a terrible thing to say that some things might be inaccessible. But somebody did bring up a good point, and it might have been on BS and Beer, which is building a single family home in a climate zone six or seven might be something that you physically have to be able to afford because it's better on so many levels. And that if you you want to build a single family home and do some of these things that the threshold for entry has to be here. And if you can only afford X and you're in some port, like some of us don't live in California because we don't have a thousand dollars a square foot to build a house in California because California has instituted title 24, which has made people do better, which means the cost of everything out there is more expensive because they need to be doing less building. So you either live somewhere else or you don't build if you can't afford those, those levels. And maybe that's a terrible example, but you know, there are parts of our country where you have to build better for comfort, for the environment, for all of those reasons. And we need to bring the bottom up the whole national average of 2,600 square feet and that people trade those in every five years. And part of the reason why they don't have an appraisal value for the better performing houses is because people don't trade them in 
every five years. And they're more than happy to live in a thousand square feet, 1500 square feet, 1700 square feet for, you know, a family of four Mm -hmm. or five. And so changing the perception of what's quality housing and hoping that the whole COVID-19, the whole stay at home, whatever, has given people enough of a break to start thinking about what's critically important and, you know, health and community and coming together. Those are going to start. I don't want to go, but everyone's like, can't wait for things to go back to normal. I don't want to go back to normal. Normal wasn't that great. What's the new normal? The American dream. I think if we can just get honest about it, it's like, the American dream that we have right now or that, that is touted, it's like, it's more like that movie Inception. It's not real. Like, and it, and it's, and it's put upon the society, I think by, you know, the, I don't know, to get really conspiracy theorists, by the corporate interests that really want us to spend more, buy more, all that kind of stuff oriented crap. And I think one of the things that I like about our industry is that the conversations we have with clients are like, no, 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 hold on. But what do you need? Let's start there and we can get to some of the, what do you wants too, but let's like, let's wake up from this dream and like, let's get to reality here and talk about what you, what, what, what you actually need in a home, you know? And I think those conversations are very different from the conversations of like, you can have anything you want and are you sure you don't want more square foot space. And like, I think the evaluation of square footage is just a stupid metric can we just call it a stupid metric like the only thing square footage stands for is how much your town that's right that's right right yeah sure mill rate that's what square footage is real about mill rate rate. (laughs) but like the (laughs) fact that they're just like that square footage matters at all because it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the home how nice it is to live there how happy you are there how well it provides for the needs of your family and where to put your things and you know, the fresh air that you need to breathe. And it doesn't, it doesn't get to anything about what it is to live in a home. It just says, this is how much land you're taking up. And this is, this is how much space you have for your farts to fill. Like, otherwise, <laughs> what's the point? you did an ERV, man. <laughs> Come on, John. That's I'm talking about everybody else, Reg. That's what I like about ours is we're going to filter that air for you. <laughs> I I also think that people don't talk enough about the economics of actually owning a house. Yeah. A house is not an asset. It is a liability until you pay it off. And even once you pay it off, it still costs you money because if you have more square footage, your town mill rate will continue to go up and you will continue to pay taxes. So it is basically always a liability. It's never really an asset unless you turn it into a rental property or something in which it can kind of flip-flop its value. Otherwise your house is a liability and everyone's like, oh, a house is an asset and I don't want to rent because I don't want to just throw away money. But that means you're tied to that location and to get out of that location, you have to spend a lot of money. You've got moving expenses and realtor expenses and et cetera. And nobody talks about that with trading it in every five years is how much money do you waste when you trade that thing in every five years because you have to then move or do something different so this is the third house that we've owned and i'm like i'm not moving again the next time i move we're going to sell everything we own and we're going to go live on a sailboat also people are always 
interested in the upfront cost. Like what's it going to cost me to move in on day one? And that's not even talking about carbon, but who's talking about what it's going to cost you to then live there every year. And the cost of energy is going to go up. And if we start, I hope, because I've been reading a lot about oil recently and it's even nastier and worse than I thought, but how we stop, you know, providing, I'd love to see us start adding taxes on, on oil so that it just is, we're not subsidizing anything. And, and Amen. it just costs as much to have that as other things. We'll stop using that technology. We'll get smarter about new innovation and newer technologies. There's a novel thought. I realize that as a country, we are economically tied to the oil industry, but to stop subsidizing it and phase it out, that feels appropriate. <laughs> yeah, well, pay what it actually costs. Right. To all of yeah, I mean, actually give everything else that's good an actual shot at it. Right, right. exactly. A true comparison. And I don't think people know what subsidies mean and what is being subsidized. That I think is another yeah. educational component of, you know, and what it, what it should cost you to build, to move forward, to move off of something, which hopefully soon, sooner than later is going to start costing a lot more money. I mean, there was a, basically a pandemic. What was it a couple of years ago? when the cost of oil was like $5 a gallon and here we are in Maine and like 80% of Maine is heated with fuel oil. And yeah, you know, it was hard for people in economic parts of Maine to put fuel oil yeah. in their tanks. Yeah. Well, and, and there's state assistance for stuff like that too. One of the things that we're looking at to get back to policy from the last time we were on is that, you know, we have to figure out as statewide and as a, as a country, how to subsidize, you know, the, the development of, you know, better buildings for people who can't afford what we're talking about. We, as we bring the bottom up, you know, like in, in Maine, we have this massive existing housing stock that's insanely inefficient, especially for this climate zone. It's crazy how bad it is. And the people, you know, people like me buy a house that's are that was built in the forties because that's what I can afford. And so that's what I'm going to live in. And like bully for me, I'm a high performance builder. And as I do stuff to it, I can, I can kind of do it the right way. But you know, if, if this state and this country wants to get serious about carbon emissions and helping the people helping to, to defray the cost of, of energy for people, building upgrades are a huge way to do that because as we all know if you want to do a true deep energy retrofit of an existing building in maine it's insanely expensive to do that you know you can do some weatherization here that you know is something that the average person can start to afford but to actually go whole hog and get your house off of that oil furnace completely I mean, you really have to do a lot of work to that envelope, and that's that can be an expensive undertaking, especially if you run into things like asbestos and lead paint and have to deal with all that and the costs associated with it. We really ought to have a fund as a society to help pay for that stuff and help develop, you know, if we're going to subsidize things, let's subsidize people trying to figure out how to do that as efficiently and cost-effectively as possible with 
carbon sequestering materials and practices and things like that. Like don't subsidize the oil industry. It's just spewing more carbon into the atmosphere. I um, used to do a lot more public housing. I worked for a community action agency for a, a number of years. Um, I was pretty impressed with anybody who was on LIHEAP assistance would automatically get put into the program mm -hmm. for weatherization. But the funding for weatherization and the number of contractors we had was only so large. You know, there were only so many that that could do it, um, and that there was a lead program for lead abatement, especially in um, you know in places like uh, I worked for one that was in the um, Androscoggin area. Is you know in Lewiston they have a lot of apartment buildings, and so there were uh, there were some good programs for mm -hmm. lead abatement for apartment buildings, which which was really a great program. Um, and I think there's so much true to that. Is if if every person that applied for fuel assistance could have access to weatherization assistance as well. Um, but there were there were people who who waited years on that program to to get somebody to come out and do weatherization assistance and then there was there was no um there weren't as many programs for people who who potentially lived in a house that that wouldn't qualify for weatherization assistance because um it needed a new roof or it was in poor condition um, and that was how I did a home replacement project with uh, a different community action um, with the uh, Region 9 high school. So the Region 9 cool. high school kids built the house with a contractor for the community action. Um, and we have been trying since then to get another person into that program, but there are other programs that will just give them a new trailer, which it can sometimes be cheaper. I mean, the great thing about school programs and community actions is a lot of these manufacturers are sure. willing to donate things, yeah. which is really nice. Um, so that helps to, to drive some of the costs down. Um, and it was great experience for, you know, the high school kids. One, yeah. they got to build, you know, they built a shed the first year, but they got yeah. to build a house the second year and um, that they got to build a high performance house. So that made them, question maybe a little bit more um and just say okay whoop, like what why are we doing this although i have to admit they got started kind of late and i think they spent 50 yeah. percent of the semester shoveling but you know um so programs like like that if they could be funded and something that came up um i was doing that when the market was pretty bad and there was a lot of ara money coming into the state so there were people who were privately weatherizing yeah. their houses as well um and I thought, wouldn't it be great if they just add a penny to every fuel oil gallon and continued that fund after the ARA funding was no longer coming into the state? So that would encourage people or maybe give them that little extra bit that they need to make it financially viable for them to make efficiency improvements in their houses. Um, and energy efficient mortgages, uh, which everybody who buys a house has to sign the paper that they told you about an energy efficient mortgage, which you don't get to sign until it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I think we might've talked about that. The well, last I like week, the idea so. of pairing it with education so. too.
Yeah. I just think there's such a missed. I just think that we really, we really got to get behind. I think we really need to be honest and we really got to start getting behind what it takes to, you know, to build these houses and, and be able to convey that really well to people coming up, whether that's people in school, you know, in, in college, in high school, middle school, college, or like, like John was saying, I mean, we, we see a lot of people that transfer over. We built a, a fair amount of houses for clients who look at us and say, you guys have such a cool job. This is so cool. You guys get to do this, you know? And we're like, well, you can do it too. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not established in my thing, you know, but it's, it's not an easy thing to transition into. And, but it should be, I mean, cause we, it should be because, well, first of all, our industry just needs it. And we need, we need a great variety of, we need people from all over wherever you come from to be able to come and do this because it's, a, it's not just, you don't just need to be a, a bull of a human to come do this work. You, this is very well thought out and technical work that we have to do. And we had to do it in all different configurations, you know, no design we build, we're custom builders mostly. So, you know, most of the stuff we're doing, it's different every time and we need to be able to apply you know, there is a fair, there, there's not just fair, there's a lot to this work that, and there's a lot to, there's a lot to this work and there's a lot to all the different facets that, that it, you know, in different organizations it takes to get to where we get, when we get to build. You know, there's a lot of, it's architecture, there's engineering, there's many kinds of engineering, there's subcontractors, there's, you know, all the licensed trades that we would, we would call licensed trades, there's design and that, there's the app, you know, there's, by the time we pan, we you know we, we hand a set of keys over to somebody or renovate their house and finally leave you know it's there's a lot of thought that goes into these processes yeah i think if there was more clout in the industry too and and it was being paid for what we're what we're doing and what we're providing and people are valuing what we're providing that would open opportunities within the construction field for some different things you were talking about um basically project management you know knowing when trades need to be at, on site when things need to happen all of that i mean that's a spe specific skill that your company has and that might be one right. person's job and so every job has things that you don't love about it so maybe some days they have to run a caulking gun and they don't really love to run the caulking gun but if 75 percent of their time is is management you know that's a skill that is huge in the construction industry but is yeah. often overlooked you know people don't think about the the spreadsheets the management the time management and all of that stuff that goes into it as a job in the construction industry and christine brought that up too is you know talking on even a larger scale or commercial construction scale is that's often a fairly well paid job in a construction industry that can be held by anybody who is super detailed and super organized like i don't like math and i was probably never going to be an accountant but i also like 
really organized things. And so I, my husband and I are trying to evaluate which car to buy. I really, really want an electric car. I think it's the right decision. It's the right move, but financially you got to afford, figure out if you can afford it. He's a mechanical engineer and I am a building science nerd architect. So we built out yeah. this huge spreadsheet to evaluate whether or not it made sense to do certain things, right? And I think that's not a way that most people think about the architecture and construction industry is there's so many more facets. Like people ask me what I do and I say, oh, I'm an architect. And they're like, oh, I wanted to go to architecture school or I wanted to do this or that. And they, for some reason, think that they either didn't have a skill or, or whatever to do architecture. And then they think about what I do all day. And they think I just do like the pretty design, like, you know, I, my, my niece is in, she's in high school now, but she's in middle school and she's like, auntie, I'm going to come work for you someday. And I want to design these, these buildings. And she's sketching out a flare plan or whatever. And I'm like, that's cool. And I mean, I get to do a little bit of that, but like, you know, here are all the other things that I do, you know, all day long. And so, you know, there's, there's a little bit going into the education of like, what did, what do people in the construction industry actually do? You know, what do architects actually do? So everyone thinks architect and thinks we all design either like the Getty Center or uh, skyscrapers. And that's a pretty small percentage of people that actually do those, those like super fancy, uh, architecture you know there are architects that design hospitals and you know what they figured out how big hospital rooms really need to be to be successful part of the reason why i don't work for a big firm and i've never done and oh uh someone told me once um they did the the first architecture firm they worked for they did uh educational work and they would have nightmares every night when they would go home because they were worried that the kids would be able to get out of the school and i'm like ooh. That's not a nightmare I want to have. I'm glad I don't do any kind of educational, like, (laughs) I don't want to, like, it's bad enough to figure out how big a window needs to be for egress, which is actually not people usually getting out of the house, but how big it needs to be for a firefighter to climb in the window with their gear on. Um, But to think about like an emergency in a school and having to evacuate elementary school kids, like that is beyond my level of wanting to, to, to know those things. (laughs) But there are people who are really good at stuff like that. And it's so different and architects are so different and we're not all good at the same things. I'm not going to be good at designing skyscrapers in schools. I'm good at designing residential and that's where my passion is. Well, and I think one of the other points that I get from you too is that a lot of what we do actually is about working with people. Yeah. And there's there's people just don't talk about that enough. And know like a big chunk of Reggie's day is actually probably more than mine is spent like working with people. Yeah, I mean that's that project management side of things. It's like you got to be organized. You got to have all this stuff, but we don't get taught necessarily to be good with people and you see that all over the place when it's like this is a major component where if you're are you good with people well you could be a manager 
you know, potentially, I mean, there's more, there's a little more to it, but like, this is a major component to it that the door is really wide open for everybody. I mean, I think that it's just, absolutely. I think we just, we just need to really shed the preconceived notions that everybody has about what it takes to do this work because it's evolving all the time. Residential architects are like marriage counselors. You have to be good good with people <laughs> that's the we said about buildings too. that's the truth yeah and especially with residential only two percent of of homes are are built by architects or designed by architects so you as the builder have now transferred to being the marriage counselor you know on the job site explaining things to 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 people what's going on in our country is finally an awakening and an awareness and the potential for education on so many levels of community society job performance let's start talking about you know does everybody need to go to college the value proposition is decreasing drastically every minute like it's just not even a sound financial investment for a much larger chunk of the population than I think anybody wants to admit right now. And you look at what's happening, you know, what's been amazing to see about, I think, I think resilience plays across all of these things, whether it's agriculture or building or anything. I mean, with COVID-19, I think we're seeing, you know, in our area, for instance, the support for local farms is insane. It's amazing. I mean, I don't know how they're actually feeling overall, but what I actually see is the growth of availability of local farm products and people putting their dollars there because it just feels safer and more secure and more available and they want to support those folks. And what we're seeing in massive farming operations around the country is, you know, they're having to do massive slaughters of animals that are never going to get used. And, you know, they're, they don't have a place to bring their products to market and there's and the government is having to buy up surplus and all this kind of stuff. And I think in the same in the building trades too, that's like, I mean, we don't factory farm houses, but there's a certain amount of that kind of like sort of mass produced for this consumptive society in housing. And we need to get away from that. We need to save yeah. the building stock that can be saved and upgrade it to the performance standards that we really need it to be at. And then the ones that we do build, you know, to keep our industry afloat and also just because we're always going to build new houses need to be built to a, a standard that does bring the bottom up. And meanwhile, we need to, we need to have all of that create better jobs for people. I mean, it's all, it's all intertwined. And I, I wonder, um, and I was starting to see some of this before COVID-19, but I think with people being home and people losing their jobs and for daycares being closed and stuff is, you know, we pushed, 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 and everybody had jobs. And really, if you were a two-income family with kids, one person worked to pay daycare and the other person worked to support your family. And I'd be really interested to see if that, if that value proposition changes a little bit, if we change a little bit in our, like, will we become you know, more like other European or other societies where we have multi-generational living, like where mm. parents start living, you know, with, right. um, you know, the other generation and potentially retiring a little bit earlier and taking care of the second generation's kids or, you know, will one parent and, and, and it, it might be the wife that goes to work and the husband that stays home or, you know, you know, any any other variety of two couple people 
that one of them goes to work and one of them stays home because they figured out maybe at COVID-19 that is it going to start to be with the, you know, what jobs were non-essential and not important that we just kept going to and staying home. Now, granted, I'm pretty sure that everybody with school-age children is going to go back to work and send them to daycare because they've all been homeschooling. And maybe, maybe not everybody was cut out for homeschooling. And maybe we can but... bring up wages for teachers because we all now appreciate. <laughs> I think that would be a huge push is that if teachers got paid more and were able to do more, the education, you know, right now, um, you, you really have to love teaching to be a teacher. It's almost an activist job now. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my wife and I were talking, her her kindergarten teacher or family friend who was a kindergarten teacher for 33 years just retired and they had a big ceremony for her in, in Rhode Island. And it was really cool. Like they had the fire department came out and they did like a little car parade and stuff. We were talking about it and like she remembers being a little girl and helping her out. She was a family friend, you know, paying for decoration supplies for the classroom and all that stuff and all of that's gotten so much worse you hear all these stories about people just having to just so kids can have pencils like the teacher has to shell out of their meager you know salary for that and like if we want and as it applies to our trade if we want all these education programs we gotta fund it you know we gotta have we gotta bring shop back and then we've gotta we've gotta have you know, budgets to help bring in speakers to talk about these things to our students and, you know, pay people for the work they're giving while also, you know, treating everybody as educators. So, Well, we've been so economic driven and so, you know, work 80 hours a week. Um, I think one of the things that came up during the whole COVID-19 is that there are a bunch of these really important issues that a lot of people feel are important issues, but they've been too busy to do anything about like, yeah. that's important, but I'm too busy, you know, and now hopefully having a bit of a, a pause or a break or an opportunity to learn more because there's so much great content out there now is that we'll be able to say, it's not just good enough to be like, yeah, that's important. I'll get to it later. Cause we don't get to it later. Like, are we taking a step back? I mean, when, when innovation was brought forward, and I brought this up a couple of times, but like when the automobile industry went to building cars in a factory, they tried to keep the number of work hours low and pay their workers enough so that their workers could afford the product they were building and then have enough time to enjoy it. Somewhere along the way, we lost the enough time to enjoy those things. And so instead, we uh, we don't like to be bored. So we fill our time with Netflix and movies and whatever, and smartphones and yeah. Um, and that we don't have time to enjoy anything. I mean, and even for me, working from home, I have to remind myself to leave the office at the end of the day, you know, like it's, it's really easy for me to come down here, respond to an email at six 30. Like all of a sudden it's six 30 at night. I'm still in the office. Like, um, so, 
and I know that it's important to, to take a break. And, you know, I was waiting for an email from someone and I was like, no, I'm still not going to check my email on the weekend because if I check for one email, I'm going to get sucked in and then I'm going to work the whole time. And, yeah. you know, all work and no play makes Emily a dull girl. <laughs> <laughs> or at least really stressed out. You're really stressed out. Yeah. And then when you're really stressed out, you don't want to do anything like you don't want to go out for a walk or a hike or do whatever because you're so stressed out and you just get into this pattern of bad habits. Like I'm going to stay here. I'm just going to watch a movie and then, you know, I'm not going to get out of my pajamas, whatever. I hope that yep. this, I hope that the pandemic is really forcing us to, to reassess a lot of things. You know, the, the people who, who have the ability, who have the luxury and the ability to do that. I mean, that, I realize that's pretty, not everyone's going to be able to do that. And that's, you know, I feel for that, you know, but I think that, I think that we really need to make a shift. I think it's important for us to hopefully be able to make a shift and really, or at least evaluate what's important, you know, and, and make, make changes culturally to, to all those things, to be able to enjoy the time, to get home, to be able, for everyone to be able to go to get home, to enjoy, to enjoy our lives outside of work, you know, because it's going to make all of us also better workers. You know, if we're not just buried in it all the time. Well, you know, the happiest country is what, like Switzerland or something, and they work 36 hours a week. Um, yeah. Sweden. I don't, uh, I can't remember. Is it Denmark? Yet, but it's, Denmark? It's one somewhere, of the, yeah. yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> and they, 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 A, do a lot of outdoor stuff. Like they, they bike to work a lot. Like they, yeah. they seem to have a lot of like movement, you know, and your movement doesn't have to be going to the CrossFit gym. Like taking a walk is movement. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they, they only work like, 36 or some hours a week because we've been pushing all these super long days and then you don't have any time to rejuvenate so you're always just working on like 50 percent power we're like all of those old cell phones where people would plug it in every night you know it'd be down to like 25 30 percent you'd plug it in and all you do is drain the battery right the battery was eventually just dead that, that's us yeah that's our, that's our current momentum yeah. I also think that, I mean, there's a certain thing too, like when you have a society like ours where everybody's working so much, it's hard to get politically active. So uh, just to tie it to back to sort of the way our conversation started too, it's like a lot of the issues that we're seeing, I mean, I'd be interested to know what the historical analysis of this moment in time is because there's just so much to try to keep your track of. But like, I think to a certain degree, we've all been sitting in our homes for months and then a crisis hits, you know, where, where a, a string of, of people are killed by, you know, um, you know, horrific means. And people are like, you know what, I'm getting off the couch. I'm I've been, I've been able to watch. I've been able to follow. I've been able to like think, like have the space to think and look at what I value. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to take action on this in whatever way, you know, makes sense for me. And I think there's a certain, like Reggie was saying, there's just like a reflection that's happening about what really matters. And that like, part of this is too, just being an active member of society. It's really hard to be an active, active member of society when you're just exhausted all the time. When just the fact of being keeps you inhibited 
in your ability to think, pay attention. You know, it's so easy to ignore, get drowned in Netflix or anything else. And we're sort of realizing it's like, oh man, if I get a breath of fresh air every once in a while, I can actually try to engage a lot more, maybe do some stuff that's uncomfortable because we all need to do that right now. We all need to take action that might be uncomfortable, but we have a little bit more energy to do it in some respects and some more time. Yeah, it's a bandwidth issue. Yeah. Oh, it for sure is. There's this silly uh, thing on Netflix called 100 Humans. And I don't know if you've watched it, but they have 100 humans as part of this social experiment. And I don't know how good of an experiment it is, but it was, it was, it was entertaining. Um, but they have like 20 people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, and their 60s. And during one episode, they were trying to figure out uh, who was like the happiest group and how efficient they were. And they had to put together a chair. So there was, um, you know, there was one person who who had the instructions and they had a walkie talkie and there was a person who was blindfolded, who was getting the instructions. So they couldn't see the chair. And then they had to verbally relay the directions to the, the other three people on the team who were putting it together. And the people in their twenties and the people in their sixties put together the chair, the fastest they, and there was some kind of equivalent through this whole series about how happy you were. And there was a happiness quotient that was in your 20s and in your 60s, which is really before you get deep into the workforce and after you retire. And those people were happier, had more contentment, had more, like, have more time in their life. And I think that there's a real equivalent to the fact that they had more time. The people in their like 40s and 50s were the worst. They were the most disgruntled. They didn't have time. They were stressed out. They were just like mm -hmm. feeling all this stuff. And I, I think taking a step back and having more time is going to be key. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Key to being politically and socially involved or key to like meet the neighbors. There was some statistic about how many people know their neighbors and it's like, most people don't know their neighbors. Right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I say that I've lived here for a year and a half. I, by sight, can identify three of my neighbors. And I know two of them. You should get them all on the podcast. And then you really meet them. That's right. <laughs> like, knock, knock, knock. I should. Hey, I have a podcast. <laughs> Let's meet. I have a podcast. Would you come on? It's hello. I've met my neighbor. Now, what? Won't That's you right. be my neighbor, Mr. Rogers? What was that from, yeah. Mr. Rogers? Yeah. Well, <laughs> one last message that I have too that I think we're trying to embody at Emerald Builders, and it just uh, for anybody listening, is that particularly in an incredibly white industry, no matter which way you cut it, it's time for for white people to have these conversations with white people too about race and about what's happening with systemic racism and justice and all that. So I hope that people will take a step to read, educate themselves, not put the burden of their education on people of color or black folks, and that they will um, find a way to take action with whatever voice that they have. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. It's always a pleasure. I think we can talk about every topic under the sun, uh, <laughs> even non-construction and architecture related topics. So Same um, here. Our pleasure. For you sure. have a Thank you, Emily. Yeah. You have a, a lot of value, I think, to offer the industry and people like hearing from you. So, so we'll got to keep you on regularly on the whenever, podcast. Whenever you need filler, we're here. 
That's right. <laughs> filler. You guys are not filler. <laughs> so it was enjoyable to drink a beer with you guys tonight. Cheers. Likewise. So thank you. Thanks for coming on. We'll see. All right. Thanks, Emily. We're coming up on 60 episodes of the podcast. I can't believe I've been doing this for over a year and doing it weekly. So I hope you guys have been enjoying the podcast guests. I'm always happy to hear from you if there's something that you want to hear from a guest we've already had on or a guest you think would be great on the podcast. Just reach out to me, Emily, at matramarch.com. Check out BS and Beer on Thursday nights. It's live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You can always watch the recaps on Green Building Advisors Building Science blog and continue the conversation there if you are enjoying those. And just an update on what's going on this coming week. It's going to be a BS and Beer show Independence Day party. So stay tuned for more information on that to join us on the party and uh, have a good time and enjoy the fourth. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next week.